Hi, I'm Damon Frank, and you're listening to The Recovered Life Show, and this is an episode of How I Did It. Every episode, I talk with someone in recovery about how they've been able to stay sober. We dive into what their life and addiction was like and what their life in sobriety is like now. Remember, addiction is a life-threatening condition, and the information in this episode is provided as a resource only and is not to be used or relied on for any diagnostic or treatment purposes. This is not a substitute when professional diagnosis or treatment is needed. Now, let's jump into the discussion and find out how they did it. Welcome back to The Recovered Life Show. Joined today by Sharon Feckety. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? You know, tell us, you know, what addiction you suffered from and how long you've been sober. Well, I am sober 29 years. I am a stepmom to a beautiful 19-year-old boy. I am a fur baby mom to a beautiful chocolate lab sitting next to me named Charlie Brown. I am the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I have uh, been sober a while, so I have quite a story, but it 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 started when I was 21, and I'm sober a long time now. And so I'm 50 years old. I was very blessed in the sense that I got sober at a very young age. So uh, a hard story, but one that I am excited to hopefully give the hope to somebody else that, you know, you can recover. However Absolutely. you decide to do that. Absolutely. I think it's great, you know, you having long-term sobriety, you know, obviously what you got sober in your 20s. When, when when you look back, Sharon, on your life and you look back to when you first got sober or when you first started drinking and or and using drugs or if you use drugs, like what 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 pointed out that something was different about you than your friends? I assume you started maybe when you were in your teens drinking. Yes. When did you start to notice that like, hey, I don't drink like other people drink? Yeah. So I was the one who wanted to buy the beer before we went anywhere. So even if we were going to go to a movie, I wanted to get an eight pack of nips, Budweiser nips back in the day at Exxon, where I knew the guy that worked there, where I didn't have to worry about my identification. So yes, I definitely noticed and so did my friends. Um, and I think it was very, very innocent from probably the age of 15 to 18. And then 18 was the first family intervention. So I came home one night after a night of drinking and my family was sitting in the living room, my godfather. And of course I was drunk, so it didn't really matter what they were saying. All I knew is that the next day I was packing up and going to my first rehab, Seafield Pines in New Hampshire. It was an adolescent rehab. And I stayed there until they kicked me out because I had, you know, two rehab romances and they had accused me of smoking pot in the rehab. Second rehab, I was mandated. I had gotten arrested. So, you know, the progression of the disease, 19 years old, arrested. Um, now I'm going to my second, what I like to call day camp rehab. I love rehabs. They're very helpful. But for me, it was just like a good time. I went to my second rehab and started thinking, you know what, maybe there's something to this. I spent the night in jail. My parents were going to Al-Anon or as we like to say back then, the other side and they wouldn't bail me out. So they let me, you know, kind of sit in jail at Nassau County in Long Island, New York for a night. 
And then uh, they didn't tell me when I was in the rehab, which was smart, that I was mandated to a halfway house for three months after that in Poughkeepsie, New York. And that's what they called it, not me, Poughkeepsie, New York. And I left after being there for a month, even though I was mandated there and could have gone to jail because I would have rather gone to jail in my sick, twisted mind at that time than spent another minute with these people that I did not think were like me. Because, you know, I told them I was from a residential area, which meant nothing, <laughs> right? And still to this day, I don't even know what I meant by that. But I I didn't think I was like the person that had done heroin and was homeless. I was from, you know, a family of love. And, you know, I had two brothers, a big Irish family in New York. I wasn't like them. And then, you know, I blacked out at 19 and moved to Detroit, Michigan in a blackout and stayed there until I was 21 years old. And I was, uh, I turned out to be a lot like those people that were in that halfway house that I didn't think that I would become like. So I was homeless, addicted, abused, beaten, all the things. And, you know, I say this almost flippantly now on this beautiful show that you're doing to help that one other person, but I've been talking about this for 29 years. So I've worked through all that trauma, thank God. Um, but by the time I got back when I was 21 years old, uh, both times that I had any length of sobriety, um, which was, you know, in that halfway house, I had become very depressed and suicidal. So my depression always came with, uh, not drinking. So my goal was to not, not do that anymore because that was my medicine. So I, 21 years old, took a Greyhound bus back to Long Island, New York. And when you sit next to a very smelly man after 10 hours on a bus, you start thinking about your life. And I had been introduced to the 12-step program a few times by a few different professionals and some courts. And um, this time it was, you know, really kind of my idea that, uh, that maybe I needed some help. So I had my last drink on my mother's birthday, August 11th, 1994. And uh, thankfully have not had the need to pick up, but I certainly had the need to leave the earth in that first year. I suffered tremendously with depression. And um, and if it wasn't for my father's uh, employee assistance program at New York Hospital, I probably wouldn't be here today because he asked me the one question that saved my life, which I will share with your audience right now. Um, and that is, are you having suicidal thoughts? And I was. And um, and with that came the real start of my recovery. Once I realized that not only did I struggle with being an alcoholic and an addict, and yes, I did many drugs. And one of the chapters in my book is, is called I Smoked Crack. So I'm pretty, you know, pretty truthful about all the things that I have done. But it really wasn't until I got that depression uh, under wraps that I was able to really recover. And a lot of people in recovery suffer from depression and it, mm -hmm. it really swings them to relapse. You know, I think when people hear your story, Sharon, they might think, you know, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're maybe trying to get a loved one uh, sober and they're, they're looking at this, they're saying, well, does a person that is drinking and using is, is recovery a progressive thing or does it happen all at once? Because you're talking about it's getting worse for you. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes it's baffling to people to listen to this because they're saying, you know, is the person that's recovering, are they getting this along the way? Or do they just wake up one day and say, hey, that's it? Mm. Well, I mean, I think everybody's 
different. First of all, I think that everybody's recovery journey is different. I know that the, the first rehab that I went to, that was the first time where any information about being an alcoholic and that being a disease and there being some backed information by like science. And I, I had just never known, you know, I came from a part partying kind of family, you know, not my parents necessarily, but a big, you know, my mom had 12 brothers. My dad had eight in his family. So, and they were born in Dublin. So we, we knew how to, to party. So I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And I think that the progression um, that's why I mentioned that, you know, that I came from a residential area and that I wasn't like everybody else because I never thought that I would end up like anybody. Yeah. I don't think anybody thinks that they're going to end up worse. Um, and I think that really at the end of the day, for me, it's about willingness. You know, I was just willing to do whatever it took. I feel very blessed in the sense that I came in with that gift of desperation that I had already done all the things. And not only did I, you know, black out, I blacked out, moved to another state and people thought I was dead um, that loved me very much. And nobody abandoned me. Uh, I still had love and support when I came home, but nobody was going to be able to do this unless I was willing to do the work. Because it, it's certainly not something that you're just a wand and like you're sober. Well, my sober wand came with depression so now how am I going to live a life without alcohol and drugs and not want to die? Well, that took a long time. And there was a lot of outside resources that I needed to get. And to this very day, to this moment, to this you know day that we're recording this, this podcast show, I woke up, I you know worked out, I meditated, I did something to help somebody else. So it's a part of my life today. This is a practice. This is not something that you just stop using drugs and alcohol and then you're okay. You know, it's a, a hell of a journey. And it doesn't, in my opinion, matter to me how anybody gets sober or how anybody gets help as long as somebody is willing to get it because this is not something somebody can give you. It comes with the willingness and then the work to stay. I mean, I'm sure you understand Absolutely. completely what I'm saying, you know, yeah. uh, being sober 29 years, people are like that must be fantastic. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. But it's also, I feel like I have to work a lot harder, you know, to stay connected to community, to, to be involved, to give back, to, to ask for help. You know, once you're around for a long time, people look at you like you might have your, your stuff together. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You talked about being from a partying family and, you know, the evolution that you've had being sober. You know, we've been sober for around the same amount of time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've seen addiction awareness just really change. You know, when I got sober, I didn't know anybody who was sober. I, I really didn't, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And I tell people now that are coming up and getting sober, they're like, what are, what are you talking about? Like, didn't you just go on Instagram and sit? No, there was no Instagram, right? No internet so, existed there, when we got sober. It, it, exactly. And it's changed so much. Um, you know, looking back on your childhood, you know, you said you came from a partying childhood. Did you see alcoholism there? Did you know anybody that was sober or was this just a total foreign thing to you? No, no, I didn't know. Absolutely not. I did not know anybody that was sober. I did have, um, I do have an uncle 
I remember that that drove me down to a park and told me that he too was struggling. But I, you know, he was, even though he was only probably what is my age today, when I was 18 years old, I thought he was 900. <laughs> like, and I'm not ready to give this up yet. I'm just having a good time. But I think he was the only example of that. And and then it was just, you know, that's just the culture that we were raised in. And that's not to say that my culture is much different than other cultures. You know, uh, I hear a lot where I come from. Nobody talks about this. Well, guess what? That's, you know, that's the term that everybody whispers to me, Sharon, where I'm from. Nobody talks about what you talk about. I know. So I'm talking about it. Exactly. You yeah. know, when you, when, you know, let's talk about uh, that bottom point where, that day or a few days where you kind of made a decision, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try this, you know, mm -hmm. and I know you've been going in and out of rehabs, things that happened to you in your life, right? You were, you're around sober people. You're not, you're using, you're not. Mm -hmm. Take us back to that day and what was going through your head and what you were thinking about mm -hmm. when that light switch is like went off and said, Hey, you know what? Maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna try to pursue this sobriety thing. Well, nobody had ever really approached the subject of me having an issue with depression. So the only issue that had ever presented to me was that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. So I thought in my depression, well, I should stop drinking because that's gonna cure my depression. Because everybody is getting me all of this wonderful help for this one thing that was really just a symptom uh, and an answer really for so many other deep underlying issues that I was experiencing. So, and I, re I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I know where I was. I was at the East Point Inn in Long Island, New York, having a birthday celebration for my mom. I was drinking a Coors Light and I just kept spilling it. And I just knew that it was the last beer. I, nobody asked me to, nobody was telling me to get sober. I just knew that I couldn't do this anymore and that I needed to make a change because when you are, you know, uh, traumatized the way I was traumatized by, by living the life that I was living, and I wouldn't even really call it living, let's call it existing. I don't think there was any other choice. I was so desperate to feel better. So I thought, well, I'll try that place that they keep telling me that all these old people are hanging out in because I was 21, I just finally was legal to drink. And now I got to give up my, my pacifier, which is what it was. And, um, and then I learned, you know, through my community of love and support that of a place where people didn't judge me that I could recover, but you know, it was slow, very slow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, I think uh, I know somebody told me, I wish you a slow variety mm. that things actually unfolded slow. And I, and looking back, it was very painful for me personally, but it, he, they were right. This person told me this. Um, let me ask you this, your first couple of months of sobriety here, your first six months, let's say, um, how did that go? I know you're, you're dealing with also treating the depression while you're also trying to stay sober and it looks like you're in a 12-step program, what really worked for you uh, to help looking back now when you look at this, what what were the things that really worked to help get you long-term sobriety that you did in your first six months? 
Well, the only thing that worked was that I didn't give up. The only thing that worked is that I didn't kill myself. I'm going to be just be very raw and real about it because my first six months was me planning my suicide. So there wasn't this, I, I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even finish a sentence. I, I thought I had lost my mind. I thought that girl that woke up singing and excited about life was gone and was never, ever, ever, ever coming back. So I saw only darkness. I could not see the light. And it, so it was absolutely me getting this outside help. When I met my father's employee assistance program counselor, Ben Figueres, I, and he asked me that question. That was when I started seeing the light. Um, and, it, and it came in a 20 milligram of Prozac. And I think that if you had given me f- fake Prozac, it would have worked too. I, it felt like there was just a, a piece of hope and I haven't taken any medication since, and I was only on it for six months. Um, but I don't have any opinions about what people do. But I needed somebody who was going to listen to me and who was going not to judge me. And then my recovery coupled with that started to become a very, very safe space. But I really like to emphasize the fact that, because I don't think we talk about it enough in sobriety, there's one thing about me being 29 years sober, but is a way bigger deal for me that I haven't wanted to die for 29 years. So there's, you know, there's this great pamphlet now in recovery and it's, you know, AA for people with mental health issues. And that only came out in 2018. And I don't care what anybody does. I really have no opinions because I too have met many Instagram influencers that are sober curious. And I think it's all great. I just didn't have that option. So what helped me the most was that I didn't give up, that I stayed willing. I just hung on, you know, I just really, really hung on. And then getting a support system and and a woman in my life that I could trust that has been with me for, you know, almost three decades now has been a real gift because I need people in my life that are going to be honest with me. Sure, it is I like that. It, it is. And I love that you're talking about mental health issues because I think, uh, your experience uh, in the time that you got sober is very rare because I know that in 12-step groups, they didn't really talk about mental health issues as much. And now that, that they talk about it a lot, I love that. You know, people are talking about trauma, how mm-hmm. it affects getting sober. They're talking about, you know, these character defects. Are they character defects? Are they trauma responses? You know, do you have depression? And obviously, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the person who uh, wrote most of it suffered from depression that we know now, right? So yes. it, I, I think this is great. You know, I, I think a lot of people are also confused too. I think that they think if they get sober, it's a catch-all. And if they work whatever program that is, it's also going to uh, solve and cure, for, for lack of a better word, any mental health issue they have. I found that that's a very dangerous approach. And I've yeah. seen a lot of people die because yes. of that, because they were just either in denial or the support system didn't recognize that it wasn't just addiction that they were suffering from. Well, may I speak on that for a moment? Yes, please. <laughs> so my truth is this, you know, uh, and I share this often. I was five years sober before I did any of the work, meaning the steps, right? So I was just too embarrassed you know, at one point to admit that I'd never done any of the work. I was just showing up and I was, I was 
basically killing other people by giving them my opinion about what they should do. And I hadn't done any of that stuff myself. And I was really, um, I'm really grateful today that I was introduced to uh, studies. So I went to big book studies. Somebody had the courage to ask me when I was five years sober, how long I wanted to stay sick inside of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was not happy with that question, but boy, oh boy, did that change things. And then I really started doing a lot of my work, but I want to I want to set that up like if it wasn't for that, my life could have gone in a very different direction. I got very, very involved in the work and really changing myself and looking at myself instead of blaming everybody else. But what I did not do, and I did not do until I was 25 years sober and released this book, was I left, I pushed all of the trauma down and I focused only on the solution. So like you mentioned before, this was not very common for anybody to ever speak about mental health or depression, anxiety, trauma, that you don't drink and you go to meetings and you you focus on the solution. You don't look at the past. So I even remember going into intermittent therapy with, you know, whatever boyfriend of where it wasn't working out. I'm happily married for 14 years now, but... <laughs> I remember just running through my trauma, you know, I blacked out, I went to two rehabs, went to a halfway house and I, and a therapist said to me, you know, you just ran off your trauma, like a grocery list. And I said, I'm not here to talk about my trauma. I'm only here to, so you can help me with this boyfriend that I'm with that won't get sober. <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny now, but now in retrospect, looking at that, like, wow, I mean, she probably could have really helped me, but it wasn't until I started writing about my trauma that I realized how much I had pushed down and how so much of that had seeped out into other ways in my life. And here I was, you know, I've been a business owner for 10 years. I, I've owned two businesses. I work in the medical industry. Doctors are my clients. You know, I wasn't going to tell anybody about what happened to me. They don't see me that way. They don't see Sharon that was addicted to crack and homeless on the streets of Detroit, Michigan. They see somebody who's, you know, in business. So, I've really changed a whole lot since 2019 because I finally realized how much the trauma that I had endured was really a big piece of how my life was going. And you asked before about childhood, you know, the only thing that I can, I, can, I do have a beautiful set of parents that live around the corner for me that are from Dublin, sound like two leprechauns, love them. Okay. But I was, I was dear Abby to everybody. Everybody came to me with their problems because I probably was the only family that there was no divorce and there was none of that, but I loved drama. I was very attracted to solving your problem. And the only problem that I was left to solve and the end was mine. Everybody else was fine. So that has been now so clear to me, but not clear Back then, I did not realize that every time I didn't want to look at my stuff, I just was trying to fix something for you or this or in business or in a work or in a relationship. So there's a lot to be said about us having that great gift of time. And hopefully somebody walks into our lives and says, hey, you know what? Have you ever talked to somebody else outside of the program about your anxiety or your depression or your OCD or your codependency or all the other things that really can't be resolved in this wonderful community. And it is a wonderful community. So, and it's not stressed enough. So I talk about it as much as possible and I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to yeah. share it on a show like this one, Damon. So thank you for that. 
I think it's very important because I think, uh, you know, on one hand, I do think physical sobriety is a must. You have to be physical, sub- physically yeah. sober mm-hmm. to be able to work on codependency issues, sure. trauma issues. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to work right. if you're constantly going in and out, but yeah. there is a balance. I mean, uh, so many things have changed in recovery. And I think there's some things that I I don't really agree with that's changed in the recovery community, but there, but this is good is really talking about that, you know, Hey, you might be suffering from other things and mm-hmm. sobriety is that first step, yeah, you know, to be able to be able to start working on everything else. Um, looking back here, uh, now that, you know, you've been sober for 29 years, Sharon, um, what, you know, tell us about your life in recovery. What have you been able to do and achieve since you've been sober that you never would have maybe thought when you were back, you know, smoking crack, right? you know what I mean? And, and homeless. Hands, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, t- so tell us now kind of about, you know, what's your, what, what's some of the amazing things that have happened to you in recovery that you never would have imagined back then when you were using. Hmm. So I became the director of operations for one of the largest medical companies in New York. I um, made more money than I knew what to do with. I I never stopped going to my meetings, though. So I'm very grateful in the sense that one of the things that I've I've never forgotten is where I came from. So every opportunity that I was gifted, I definitely worked for, but I never forgot where I came from. So I always worked very hard. Um, when I left New York 18 years ago and moved to Tampa Bay, Florida, which is where I live today, I moved alone. I decided that I wanted to live in the sunshine state. And I think one of the greatest gifts that I have gotten out of being sober is that it's real clear to me that I was gifted a life. And what I decide to do with that is on me. So how could I not live this incredible life that was so freely given back? I should have been dead more times than I care to admit here. So Moving here to Florida was incredible. I ran a, a large medical practice here. I met my husband. I have a, a beautiful husband and a 19-year-old stepson and a beautiful chocolate lab that's pissed off at me right now, walking away because I haven't given him another treat. I have my own I have two businesses. Well, I've, I've condensed it to one. I, I speak about mental health in the workplace at, medical, at conferences. People pay me a lot of money to hear my story. They pay me a lot of money to hear my story because I have pushed to have that happen. I want to openly and freely talk about mental health in the workplace because I've run businesses and I've had my own business and I realize how difficult it is. And there are many things that are dysfunctional in in life, but also in business. So I've been I've been gifted so much. There's not even enough time to talk about it. The love and respect from family the ability to have truthful, honest conversations, to communicate openly, to walk away from toxic environments and people and businesses has probably been one of the hardest things, but one of the greatest gifts. So I just don't, um, I just don't take it for granted. So if I want to do something, I typically do it. That doesn't mean it just comes easy like that. It means I realize that I was plucked out. I call it a crane in my book. A crane picked me up and dropped me in so many safe spaces throughout my life that I would be really doing a disservice, not just to myself, but to many others that could see somebody recover and really live out loud. So 
I am uh, eternally grateful for all of the horrific trauma that I experienced today because I don't take life for granted anymore. Sharon, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're they're on the fence, let's say, about whether they should get sober, Hmm. what advice would you give them? Well, how long do you want to stay sick? I mean, that that's really it. How long do you want to blame everybody else? I'd like to ask people questions versus this isn't for the weak. You have to be strong and courageous in order to change your entire life. And changing your entire life means that you can't like, how can you drink your pain away? How could you sit in front of a television all day and drown your pain away? You have to be willing to, you know, be within your own brain. Being within your own brain doesn't get enough street cred. When, you know, the pandemic happened and all these horrific things happen in the world, the ones like us that are sober today, we don't have the luxury of taking a drink or taking a hit. We have to stay in our own brains. So how how long do you want to stay sick? There's no great place to check out. The best place to check out is within our own body and our own mind. So I like to just ask people that question that was asked to me. It doesn't have to be how long do you want to stay sick in Alcoholics Anonymous because there's plenty of those people there. But how long do you want to stay sick? Because, you know, there's this great term. It's called QTR, quality time remaining. We have quality time remaining on this earth. So like, what do you want to do with it? It doesn't matter what I think you should do. It only matters what you think you should do. So I hope that answers your question. I love it. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're going to put links in all the show notes about how you can get a hold of Sharon. Thank you. thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Damon. I appreciate what you're doing. Sometimes addiction recovery can be a lonely battle, but you don't have to fight it alone. At Recovered Life, we're dedicated to helping you live your best recovered life. And that's why we're inviting you to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. Every week, we carefully curate exclusive content from leading minds in addiction recovery, mental health, and all things important to the recovery lifestyle. Stay in the know with the latest news about addiction and get exclusive invitations to specially recovery-focused events and explore insights tailored to support recovery from alcoholism, drug addiction, codependency, disordered eating, dysfunctional family dynamics, gambling, and so much more. With our newsletter, each week becomes an opportunity for growth, healing, and taking a step closer to the life you deserve. Take your first step towards a brighter future today. Go to recoveredlife.us and subscribe for free. Sign up now at recoveredlife.us.